Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, Albuquerque says there's a major cultural event at its Civic Plaza where 92 full-scale reproductions from Madrid's famed Prado Museum are on display. Admission is free, under shade, and includes works by some of the world's greatest artists. For a review of the exhibition, we are joined by UNM European historian Charlie Steen. Dr. Charlie Steen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Charlie, what I'd like to do is later in the show talk about some of the most famous paintings that are in the exhibition, but let's start with the quality of the uh, reproductions. Do they convey what they need to convey in order to appreciate the art? They do. It's like walking through a wonderful magazine in many ways. The you're lacking the color and the lack and the uh, ununiformity that you would have in the museum, but they're perfect and they're at eye level, and you can get close to them. You cannot get close to the paintings in the museum. Yeah, and you've seen a lot of these in a, in their original form, right? Yes, not at the Prado, but at other at other traveling museums and the museums where this uh, some of these works these works have traveled. So this exhibition is a traveling exhibition, and it's been to basically Spanish America. It's been to uh, Santa Fe. It's come here. It's been to several Central American cities. And the implication certainly is that that this would be of special interest to people in the Spanish Americas. And what I'd like to do is come back to that question at the end of the show, but really emphasize now at the beginning of the show that Besides the Spanish artists, there are many, many other artists from uh, Europe that uh, very famous ones with great works. And, uh, I mean, there's, uh, well, there's, you can name them for me, right? Yes, indeed. You're going to start off with a whole series of people before you get the native Spanish artists. And so mostly Italians and Dutch. And you'll find some of the best names at the Prado from both of those lands which produced more artists, particularly in the 16th and 17th century, than all the rest of Europe combined. So so one very famous Dutch artist that I think every listener will have heard of is Rembrandt. And he, there is a work from Rembrandt at the uh, exhibition. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about Rembrandt and about the work at the exhibition. Well, it is an oddity. The painting was added in the 18th century by Charles III, the king of Spain at that time. This is in 1779. It is a rare painting. Uh, it had it lacks provenance. No one knows wh- how it was purchased. But it comes to Spain at that time as Artemisia. It is now called Judith. But this is the triumph of the 18th century for Spain to acquire this. And it's a reconciliation in many ways. Why, why is that? Because the Rembrandt represents the Dutch Golden Age, which was the result of the Dutch throwing off Spanish rule. I see. In an 80 years war, That it was the mouse that roared, tiny Holland beat the Spanish Empire. And so here is the work of art that represents this so much. Earlier Dutch works that they have were done before the revolt of the Netherlands. But this is one where Rembrandt is the decisive figure in the Golden Age, the best recognized name among 500. And this work is an extraordinary one. But there are so many that are. So why is it extraordinary? One, it's confusing. And two, it is exquisitely crafted so that there are several layers. 
you have a main subject, his wife was his model, and then you have a girl who is presenting her with a cup. In the background is a woman who's in the dark and is holding an object which is somewhat discernible. The debate over what that is has made many a tenure promotion easier. So the, 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 the Rembrandt's use of light and darkness is, is one of the things that, that comes through, and, and this is considered one of his, one of his masterworks. Correct? Yes, it is. This comes from the 1630s as he's just moving into a period of extraordinary inventiveness. Uh, then he moves to making a lot of portraits and then history paintings and quite a few classical studies. But here is a man whose works number in the hundreds, and every one of them is astonishing. So, all right, so we've talked about Rembrandt, and there's Rubens. There's all kinds of non-Spanish artists. And as you said, from the early period, there's a lot of non-Spanish artists. And so wh what I've asked you to do, we've talked about one of the 92 works now. That's right. What, what happened, <laughs> like, I'd like you to, to sort of, and I ask you to select in advance a few to talk about with us that you uh, thought would have good uh, resonance with our audience. So I'm going to shoot it over to you. Uh, who do you want us to talk about first? I'd like to talk about Hieronymus Bosch. Okay. The first of the truly great late Flemish provincial painters uh, who painted the Garden of Earthly Delights in about 1505-1510. And it is not only a triumphant work of art, it also represents a key moment in the history of Europe because it's one of the first very clear indications of the nature of introspection that was going on in, among intellectuals at that time. And that they were moving away from the church. It's a hint that the Reformation is a half a generation away. It describes lust, uh, but coyly. It was meant as an altarpiece, but could never be used as one because almost everyone in the triptych and the three parts of it are in the nude. What, what's an altarpiece? You would have this painting above the altar in a church. I see. And so when you're doing the Mass, you're looking at that, and it's supposed to be an inspirational painting. I can certainly imagine why this couldn't be an altarpiece. I mean, when you look at it, you, you've, you're drawn into it, particularly the center Yes, piece. you are. And then you look and you think, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? And what you see is, I mean, it looks like sex, right? It's lots of sex. It's lots of hints of sex. It's also a great big hint at guilt. And you can tell where Protestantism is going to roost in this. It's not a joyful thing at all. Uh, mankind has slipped into the horrors that will end in later paintings by Bosch. But this, even the last here, judgment. there's damnation, right? That's the third. That, that's the third one. <laughs> that's the third. And panel, that's right? that's really a juicy one too. That yeah. and the the one like it done by Peter Bruegel, the uh, the Last Judgment. These are pretty horrific in terms of the depictions of the destruction of life. The Bosch that starts the show, though is the one that attracted the attention of Philip II of Spain, who was the really the author of the Dutch Revolt because he was of a persecuting temper and wished to impose an inquisition on the Dutch who worked under the rule of law than the, rather than the rule of inquisitors. So uh, do we have any idea how this painting was received at the time? I mean, it, 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 to me, I mean, my guess would be it would shock people, but... But did it? Do we know? It, pardon me. At first it did. And one of the problems with Spain is that the Inquisition there 
which commences in the 16th century, becomes increasingly powerful and increasingly intrusive so that they are even bothering the people at court. And they demand that this painting be redone and have people clothed. I see. And so, and, and so Philip simply moved it into a separate chamber where they didn't have to see it. But no church in Spain would ever have put that on display. Uh, Philip also had a large number of Italian artists do very sexy works of drawn from Greek and Roman mythology. It's not hard to find the subject matter. And they're, they're very beautiful paintings. But there was an effort after Philip died to have them all burned. So if uh, you just tuned in, this is New Mexico, People, Places, and Ideas. I'm talking with Charlie Steen, who is a uh, UNM European historian. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in 30 seconds. Whether it's politics, native culture, or entertainment, the news stories that impact Native communities are what you hear on Native America Calling. Join us as we bring you the nation's first and only electronic talking circle. Native America Calling from Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. We are back on New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Steven Spitz. I'm here in the studio, and I really want to thank Charlie Steen for joining me in this studio. He's a European historian. We're talking about the exhibition of Prado paintings at the Civic Center. The city of Albuquerque is putting on this exhibition. And uh, if we could, Charlie, I'd like to move on to the next major artist that you'd like to talk to us about and, the, and his paintings. And I say his because I don't think there's any females in the, uh, painters in this era. Uh, yes, there are, but oh, uh, the, uh, that, 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 that are in this exhibition. Uh, there's one in the in this exhibition. There's one in the exhibition. That's right. Who is that? Uh, it's a, a, a young woman named Artemisia. Oh, I see. And she was extraordinary as the daughter of a painter and did very exquisite works. But um, she was the first of a long series of artists, particularly from the north of Italy, who would then flourish. Some in the Spanish market. A young woman named Sofonisibo was even taken back to Spain by, by the Spanish government uh, to paint there. So they're there. But this exhibit of, uh, is, is a rather masculine in, it, in its approach. Uh, but some of the other works, like Titian's, he does the portrait of Charles V, the portrait of Philip II. And this is a contribution to the beginnings of a collection that you see that is not going to be treated uh, as personal property. That is, there's a hint there that finally this government is going to admit that it is national property, as we would call it, royal property. And so you're painting the image of the ruler, but it does not stay with that family. It stays with the nation. And the paintings are extraordinary. Uh, Titian, the artist, is the longest working artist probably in, in European history. He worked for 60 years. He was painting when he dropped dead at the age of 91. Wow. Uh, and his works are exquisite. He's also... A very impressive one in terms of the painting done of Charles V is very moody and very filled with symbols of yeah, power. Yeah, the it's an incredibly uh, powerful painting. It looks, I mean, he looks so kingly in that 
in that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the, and then also Philip II, is the, he is the very image of And he royalty. looks princely, and he's young in that. That's right, he is. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, this is a relationship that lasts a long time, so that there are other Titians that are purchased by Spain uh, for this collection, and also purchased by Spanish aristocrats, and ultimately many of those will go to the Prado. Now, these, both of them are in armor. Is there such a thing as ornamental armor, or do they have to wear, like, the real McCoy? When it, they... the, it, it makes for a silly silliness. Um, for instance, the armor worn by Charles V is to emphasize that he was at the Battle of Muhlenberg. Well, he wasn't. Uh, and this, they did a sketch of him, and they did the sketch of the battle in the background, but the sketch of him was done about 100 miles away. Uh, and Philip II was always full of bravadocio and wearing his armor and whatnot, but uh, this is not a man who rushed to the battlefield either. You know, it, it, it's sort of uh, interesting that I- if you look at modern, say, British royalty, when they get married, they wear their uniforms. That's they, right. They still serve in the, uh, in the military. Mm-hmm. And even here, it seems like uh, this year for 2018, the Democrats are trying to run you know, people who've served in the army, who've who right. retired from the army. So, we, you know, the, this idea of, of, of military prowess being uh, something significant to, to being a, a representative, to being a ruler, that's still with us. That's for sure. Um, so, so these two Titian paintings, was, it, was he a court painter? Because I read that I read somewhere that the 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 painting the the second painting of uh, was it Philip right mm-hmm. that was done in Augsburg Germany so he wasn't even in Spain when he did the painting no he traveled around he was in hot demand uh, this he is the best painter of the second half of the 16th century in the Republic of Venice where he is free to do anything mm-hmm. and this was an advantage for artists to be there. And he represents that quality, but at the same time, his success was so great that no one would dare ever accuse him of, of heresy, which was a common problem in the 16th century. And he could travel freely through into the Germanies. He even went to Spain at one point and traveled freely even into Switzerland. So there's some, so there's an incredible amount of cultural exchange and art exchange during this period. I. Yes, they, and they're that, right to one another. To me. It's it's you know one of the other artists that is important to this is Durer, and he travels widely. He talks to people. He writes letters. These are these are extraordinary people, and they suddenly pop up in places, uh, partly for their own entertainment, but partly to answer a commission. But they always join with other artists, and so there is a commonality. There's a lot of literature out there from them. Um, Particularly along the Rhine, it's a, it's so so the so the various monarchs would be acquainted with who who's the best painter, who can you get to do your work, and and how I mean do do these guys make a lot of money? The painters Titian did, yeah. Um, we know that because he was also a miser, and he kept <laughs> he kept everything, and kept pretending that he was poor, but when he died, of course, he had the probate process was very much present in Venice. So there was a strict accounting. He was very rich when he died. I see. So you could, you could do well being a successful painter. Yes. Most did not. My favorite painter from the whole time is Bruegel, uh, who lived what we would call today a middle-class life. He had, he had a, a house. His family was well-fed, 
well well dressed, but it was not a fortune, and yet his paintings are among the most enduring. So he, he's he's from Flanders. Yes, he Flanders. He dies in Brussels. So what what we're doing is we're talking about um, the exhibition of art, uh, ninety two different paintings that are at the Civic Plaza, um, and we've talked about a few of them so far. Our guest is Charlie Sheen, and we're and we're going uh, we're going to try to give examples of uh, works that uh, the the audience might find interesting. And I've sort of left it up to Charlie to do the selection. And who would you like to talk about next, and, and what painting? El Greco, who manages to get out of Crete, hence the name, and to Rome, and from Rome to Toledo, uh, and then he paints for the court in Madrid, but refuses to move there. Uh, paints a lot for the church. These are extraordinary, if rather dark, paintings. But then his portraits are also amazing, and the one I'd like to mention and emphasize the most is his portrait of a young, of a young noble. Uh, and it's one of the finest of the portraits that you're going to find in this exhibit downtown. At the same time, uh, there are others that are so like it but you can see a difference here, and you can see that people who see this and who are themselves artists are probably going to paint differently in the future. Uh, he, he is the one who comes closest to approaching in portraiture what Rembrandt will do in the next generation. So, so w w what is it about his style that makes you say that? One, he focuses on the character, and it doesn't need, necessarily need a name. He is... He does a lot of people who have their names splashed everywhere, but he puts as much attention into this portrait of just a young gentleman. So this, is, this would be somebody who commissioned this work, wanted yeah. the portrait, right? I would imagine that there was a family that came together and had this done of a favored son. You, the, the photography didn't exist at this time. Oh, no, no. We're, no. we're hundreds so of years away. So if you wanted a, a, an image, you needed a portrait. Yes. And this, uh, this helps to set standards for usually portraits tend to be more formalized with more symbols around and this is emphasizing the character of the person yeah he, he his gaze uh is such a that's right a, that it invites your gaze um but i mean he, he's not poor right he has a oh, nice, no. yeah uh he's wearing a nice gold chain it looks like mm -hmm. He's called a gentleman, and if he has a sword, a, he, yeah. if he has a sword, he's an aristocrat. Because so, if you were a commoner, you couldn't carry one. Oh, I see. So he, d does that mean he's part of the nobility? Yes, I see. So do you have? I mean, this is a totally unfair question. Do you have any idea how much it would have cost at that time to have a portrait done well, by you, El Greco? The, we, it, I found one reference that was that was fascinating for Velasquez, who was just after him, and he was paid 30 ducats, and this person did the research on the ducat, which is a gold coin, and found that it was, by our standards, uh, two ounces of gold. And then you can do that, because there was a rarity at that time. Um, they were dependent upon these, the fleet from Latin America to bring in gold. Uh, and so this would be this would be a handsome, handsome prize. A handsome, handsome. You, you would have. You. It would be expensive to have this done. Oh, you bet. Um, um, so, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico people, places, and ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm in the studio with a European historian Charlie Sting. We're talking about 92 uh, paintings from the famed Prado Museum 
that are at Civic Plaza, and you brought up Velasquez. So let's let's talk a, a bit about Velasquez. This is probably the best painter of the, the middle the, and the first half, certainly, of, of Spain's remarkable age. He is to painting what Lope de Vega and Teoseo de Molina is to, were to, uh, to drama, and he was friends with them. He started by painting very common scenes where he would go out on the street at one of his most famous paintings at the Prado is, and I believe it's downtown too, is The Drunkards, because he just came across a bunch of people who were coming out of a bar and sat down. He went to a fishmonger's and watched a woman prepare fish and did a painting of it. That too is in the exhibit and a wonderful one. But then he attracts the attention of the court and the painting changes. And his most famous work is uh, Asmenenis, the paintings of the of the children of um, Philip IV's second wife and all of the people who were at court. Beautiful individual portraits are scattered around this painting. I mean, each one is, there. Is, is amazing. It's just incredible. Yeah, He's in it. He paints himself. Yeah, but Velasquez himself mm-hmm. paints himself painting. Yes. He's got a brush in one hand and an easel in the other, and you can see what, where he's... Uh, trying to paint. And there's one biography that I was lucky to see that said he promoted himself in this too because in the painting he has a cross on his shirt. Oh, and yes. And the cross is a symbol that is given when you've been promoted to a certain point and you have to have the authentication of the Catholic Church for that. And he painted this in 1656 and he received that authentication in 1659. And so he knew it was probably going to be but he gave it to himself a bit early. This is the only self-portrait we have of him. In contrast, Rembrandt at the second at the same time has 150 separate self-images. Not he all does. Paintings. Yes, he was remarkable. No, I've seen some of them, but I had no idea. Oh, yeah. there were you, you catch him as a young man to a very very old man, uh, a happy man and a very sad man. He paints. He he sketches his family regularly. Velasquez did a little bit of that too with oil sketches. The placement of the dwarfs at, at the there's two dwarfs in the yes. painting. So, do you, you think the, those were actually attendants to, to the princess who's at the center, or do you think he just placed dwarfs there? No, every court had dwarfs. Uh, it was they an extraordinary, did? extraordinary, strange. Almost every 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 European major court, court has had dwarfs. Had dwarfs. Yeah. And when somebody finally gets ends it, uh, Henry the Fourth of France ended it for him. Uh, he just he said no. This is uh, this strange. The dog may stay, but we will not have. It. Sometimes they would deliberately have people who were um, who couldn't move well. Uh, some who could move very well. Some who couldn't move at all. The courts were very very strange. They're confined hot houses, where not always rational thought is the leader. So are, are you talking about intrigue? Is that what you're... Intrigue and just bizarre behavior. You're living in a set-aside. This is one of the courts, that painting is one indication of the start of etiquette, where everyone has a place and everyone has to speak in a certain way and move in a certain way. It's a very rigid court formula. I see. And it can drive you to a strange behavior. So I, I think we have time for one more artist. So All right. who would you like to talk about? Oh, let's go straight to Goya. Okay. Because so far we've been talking about people who are 
part of the society. Velasquez, for example, they all want to be part of this. You get to Goya. He is hired by the court to be the court painter and paints very polite paintings of a very insipid royal family. They were, these are the, these are the Bourbons, and they were on the verge of extinction, dying out for, through intermarriage for the most part. But then there is the catastrophe for Spain of French invasion as part of the French Revolution. And the catastrophe is partly instituted by military affairs and partly by the fact that many Spaniards had taken up the cause of revolution for themselves and even formed a constitutional society. The message of the, of the American co colonies and the new United States was not lost on them. So what, what time are we talking about? 1789 to 1794. I right, right, right yeah, during right our yeah. And so suddenly you have this ferment, and then the, the, the French, under Bonaparte, of course, it, have an imperial policy, yes, and they invade, and that starts a whole series of disasters. And Spain is beset first by the, the Bonapartists, that Joseph is appointed, Napoleon's brother, is appointed king of Spain, uh, an excess of... So Napoleon takes Spain. Oh, yes. Yes. But can't hold it. But can't hold it. This will become for Bonaparte uh, his Vietnam. He loses more troops trying to hold on to Spain than he loses in the, in the catastrophe that was the Russian invasion. And it's a catastrophe for the Spanish as well because the English invade from the south through Portugal and you have the English fighting the French while both are fighting the Spanish because <laughs> the Spanish don't want either of them, thank you. Uh, and they, they fight what are called little wars, which gives us the term guerrilla. Uh, it's because, and that will lead to ambushes and the painting that is most poignant is the so massacre. So we're back to Goya now. Back, right. back to Goya. Yeah. Goya witnessed the massacre of the 3rd of May of 1808 and did this painting, which I, I think the best comment I've ever read about it is that this is a painting that knows no time boundaries. Uh, he captures what is going to happen with increasing frequency, but also what has happened before. But he does so in such a way that it is an astounding painting. And his paintings thereafter are completely different. He will continue to do portraits, but they become bold, and he will not do silly people. Uh, he does a series of engravings and sketches which take him in whole new directions of criticism. But these paintings are enormously powerful. Yeah, we, what we see is we, we see an execution, right? We, yes, a, fire, we see, a French firing squad, and we only see the French backs of the heads of the, of the soldiers. And we see them simply shooting down people who... Yeah, there's people, bloody people with their corpses on the ground, blood all over the place. And yes. we see someone with their hands up about to be shot. Yes. That's, and, uh, and the fear in, mm -hmm. it, 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 of the people about to be shot and the, and the gruesome nature of the people shooting uh, is astounding. It is. The anonymity of the soldiers. Yes. The very clear personality of the people who were dead or dying. Uh, it is one of the most, even in copies, it is a gripping, gripping thing. Uh, probably this is, if you had to compare it to another painting, uh, like Picasso's Guernica. Well, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. I would like to thank my special guest today, UNM historian Charlie Steen. I would also like to thank my engineer, Roman Garcia, 
The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki. My name is Stephen Spitz, and you've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of this show are available at iTunes. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.